0: Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's art director. For this episode, TW founder and publisher Martha Nichols speaks with best selling author Richard Zimler about the newest addition to his Sephardic cycle, the incandescent threads. In addition to earning several awards for his books, including a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship, Richard has also contributed to Talking Writing in the past. His 2012 essay, A Tale of Two Polands," details his book tour of Poland for the Warsaw Anagrams. The visit marked his first time in the country from which his grandparents emigrated before the Nazi occupation. Their eight brothers and sisters remained, however, and none survived the genocide. During his 2011 publicity tour, he spoke with as many people as he could to delve into the mindset of Poland's post-Holocaust antisemitism, remarking in particular on the sentiment of many modern-day Poles that Poland was the exclusive victim of the Holocaust. In this interview, Martha opens up the themes and literary techniques that emerge from the incandescent threads and how they relate to Richard's personal life.
1: Richard Zimler was born in New York in 1956 and now resides in Porto, Portugal. His 12 novels have been translated into 23 languages and appeared on bestseller lists in 12 different countries, including the United States, the UK, Australia, Brazil, Italy, and Portugal. The Incandescent Threads is Richard's most recent novel and it will be the focus of much of our conversation here. This novel was a finalist for the National Jewish Book Award this past year in the book group category, and it's the latest in his Sephardic Cycle, an acclaimed group of independent works that explore the lives of different branches and generations of a Portuguese Jewish family, the Zarcos. In 2023, Parthian Books, Richard's current publisher, will be reissuing three other of the Sephardic Cycle novels, Hunting Midnight, Guardian of the Dawn. And the seventh gate, as well as the standalone work, *The Search for Santa*. So, Richard, welcome, and thank you so much for talking with me at Talking Writing. i well, thank long you for this enough- wonder-
2: Thank you for this wonderful invitation. That's all I wanted to say. <laughs>
1: Oh, you're very welcome. I, I've really been an admirer of your work for, for many, many years. And and at TW, we've been fortunate to publish some of your nonfiction pieces a few years back, including A Tale of Two Polands, which came out, I think it came out in 2012. Let's start by talking about The Incandescent Threads. Uh, I mean, it really is a moving and unusual novel. And uh, can you describe what it's about briefly? Sure.
2: For me, it's about two charismatic, wonderful cousins, Benny and Shelley Zarko, the only survivors of the Holocaust in their family. Um, They managed to get to, well, Benny gets to New York and Shelley gets to Montreal. Benny becomes a tailor. Shelley owns a sporting goods store. And it's a book really about how, two things I would say. One, how we transmit trauma to our loved ones, our kids in particular against our own wishes, how our silence about something like the Holocaust, and that's just one example, can create this difficult bubble to pierce for our children, our wives, our husbands, our best friends. And the silence becomes so, so, so large that kids in many families that I've spoken to end up thinking that their parents didn't, didn't have any confidence in them because they never talked about the camps. They never talked about the ghettos. They never talked about their parents and brothers and sisters who died. And the second thing that I think it's about, and this has to do with the structure of the book, is uh, there's something that Eva, a wonderful Christian piano teacher who saves Benny's life when he's a young boy by hiding, hiding him in her farmhouse, she comes to the realization that maybe none of us is ever aware of our true significance. So the book becomes A story of how Benny and Shelley Zarko, these cousins, how they had this amazing, wonderful, moving influence on their friends and their families without their even knowing it, without their even Mm -hmm. suspecting that they've had the influence. And this has to do with the incandescent threads because it's Benny's theory while reading Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah. That there are nearly invisible connections between the past, present, and future, and between all of us, and between events as, as far away in time as him being locked in the Warsaw Ghetto, and his relationship with his grandchildren, for instance. And that has to do with the structure. I mentioned that because there's actually five different narrators in six large chapters. The first narrator is Benny's son, Ethan, whom he calls Eddie. And then there are chapters from Benny's wife, Teresa, from Shelley, his cousin, Shelley's wife, Julie, their best friend, George, who happens to be half Navajo, half Jewish, and who helps save Benny, goes back to Poland after the war to find him and bring him back to to Canada first and then the United States. And there's a chapter from my wonderful, beautiful Eva, the the Christian piano teacher who risks her own life by hiding Benny in her home.
1: You call it, it's, it's a, it's a novel in mosaics or I think that's sort of the, yeah. And and that's sort of the, the, there's the image. There's not only the incandescent threads, but there's also the image of the mosaic and the different pieces of a mosaic that all fit together. Um, All these different stories from these different points. Yeah. In
2: part, in part because like you, I know from talking writing, I believe that readers feel more engaged and more emotionally tied to the characters and the story when they have to fill in some blanks themselves. So these chapters take place at different times. I mean, Eva hides Benny during World War II. And then there's chapters later when when Benny, an old man, goes through an emotional crisis and his son has to come to help him. So readers have to kind of tie some things together. Uh, and I think when when a reader does that, when a reader feels like, I get it, I know what the author has done, I understand Benny and Shelley and the effect they've had, they feel much more satisfied and much happier that they've participated in the process of crea- creating the story.
1: Well, yes, and I th- I think that is also how you um build a lot of dramatic tension. Yeah. You know, I mean, the reader wants to find out. The reader wants to participate in that putting together of the story. And I think one of the things that is so wonderful about this uh this particular novel is because of all the different points of view, um they're all telling the story of of their lives, at least one yep. stretch of their lives. Um and uh What's interesting to me is how each one of them is very, very much both trying to make meaning of what's happened to them. And also in some way, speaking to somebody, we don't know who, but it does have the quality of oral history or testimony or that. And I think that's a really interesting part of this and that it is how, when you take everybody's stories about any event, you start to have a much richer sense of what actually happened and what people actually felt and experienced and all that. Yes.
2: And I feel like um, this was, happened almost by accident to me is, you know, I finished the first chapter told by Benny's son, Ethan, and I didn't know where to go with the book, but he had (laughs) mentioned, because I, when I write a novel, I know what's going to happen in the first chapter more or less, but then I have no idea of the rest of the book. And yet, Ethan mentioned in his story about his father's emotional crisis all these wonderful people, you know Cous- cousin Shelley, Shelley's wife Julie, a nurse, you know uh, from a Quaker family, George, a Navajo Indian who served in the Canadian Army and helped liberate Berg and Belson. And so all these wonderful people were mentioned, but I didn't know anything about them yet. And so for <laughs> me, writing the rest of the novel was in part to discover who these great people are, and how Benny and Shelley affected their lives, and vice versa.
1: So you were putting the mosaic together inside you.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, I find that that's the only way I can write a novel. I know that there are novelists out there who plan everything from the beginning. They know what's going to happen in the 15th chapter, in the 30th chapter, and somebody gets divorced, then they get married. I don't know that characters sometimes even appear out of nowhere. Uh, for instance, in this book, George, who's half Navajo, half Jewish, I d- I didn't know he was a Canadian soldier who had helped liberate Bergen-Belsen, but it all started to fit together. That's why I called it a mosaic, because the puzzle pieces, as I wrote the book, started to just come together. It was this magical process, uh, because I wasn't in complete control of it, and. It felt, and so for me, this book, this particular book, "The Incandescent Thread," seems almost like magic to me. It it just happened, and I'm so glad that I happened on these different people and that they participated in the story.
1: Well, would you say that it it feels more uh, sort of magic, or it came together in more of that magical way than and some of the other books in the cycle, like the last? I do
2: think evolution? I do think that. Um, you know, the, the the Last Kabbalist of Lisbon, which was my first novel, yeah. um, in some sense, on its most superficial level, it's almost like a mystery novel. And when you when you write a mystery novel, you kind of have to plot out some pieces and know, you know, who's the murderer, how they did it, where the murder happened. Uh, you have to sometimes leave false clues. So the reader picks up on the clues. But that's that's a, you know. That's not where the murder happened. And, you know, so you have, and so a mystery requires a bit more structuring. And in this one, I didn't have that burden. You know, it's it's not a detective, it's not cops, it's not anything like that. It's I can tell everyone's story at the rhythm they need to tell it. And with the voice, you know, it was very important for me to have Teresa's voice be different from Julie's, you know, Teresa, Benny's wife, Julie, Shelley's wife. Uh, And I, I, I did that consciously um, by structuring sentences differently, by using different rhythms, different vocabulary. You know, I would write down words that Julie would use that maybe Teresa wouldn't use. And I felt that was really important to give the novel, the believability of each narrator being his or her own person.
1: Why don't we do this? Why don't we have you read a section where uh, it's from towards the beginning of the book from um, Benny's son. It's from the perspective yep. of Benny's son, Ethan or Eddie. Eddie, and um, uh, why don't you read a little bit? Because I I think it will also give a, some of the quality of these voices that are recounting various things about the family. In this case, it's about he's describing his uh, grandfather on his mother's side, I believe, Yes. his grandfather, Maury, uh, and uh, in a way that just, it just feels so open-hearted to me. So uh,
2: go ahead and read. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. Maury is uh, a Sephardic Jew originally from Greece, and he makes his way to New York. So here's, here's Ethan talking about Maury. During high school baseball season, Moore used to come see me play as often as possible. Once, when I'd hit a triple down the line and right, I looked up from third base to see him weeping. He told me later that while I was running the bases, he'd realized with growing excitement that our family genes had skipped two generations. Papa was a really fast runner, just like you, Eddie. He almost made it to the Olympics in Stockholm in 1912 in the 400 meters. I overheard him once saying to my mom, me, a nearsighted Greek Jew with bad knees, and I've got two gorgeous daughters and Willie Mays for a grandson. Who'd have figured it? That remark seems so typical of him and so generous that I often think of it when I study the picture of him and me that I keep on my night table. It's a photograph that my father snapped of us just after a baseball game. All these years later, I can still feel me want to show off for my family. I've put my baseball cap on, Grandpa Mori, and my arm is over his shoulder because it makes him feel proud that I'm taller than him and nearing manhood. His eyes are a bit tentative and embarrassed since he suspects that a little old Greek Jew might look ridiculous in a baseball cap, though everyone who sees the picture invariably says something like, your grandfather looks so cute. My wife, Angie, never knew Maury, but came closer to the truth when she said, He looks like he never stopped being a kid. I once asked Maury what it felt like to know he'd never again see the family of his childhood, his parents, or his little brother and sister. He replied, Every morning I light four candles inside my mind, and I'm aware that it'll never be enough, but it's all I know how to do. And I've been doing it since 1947 when I began to accept that no one survived. He also added in a conspiratorial whisper, the secret I'll only tell you, Eddie, is that sometimes I'd like to blow out the flames just for a day or two and forget what happened. In this book, I, I tried very hard to write realistically and movingly about the different characters, but without being sappy or saccharine. You know, you don't want to slide into being, i uh, what's the word? You want people to be poetic and truthful. I think the word I'm looking for is truthful. And, and you know, the, all the saccharine and syrupy things we see about people's traumas, they're not truthful. They're they're just made to make us cry or make us appreciate them. And and you know people have these different paradoxes. And the paradox of Maury lighting these candles in his mind, but also sometimes wanting to blow them out and just forget.
1: Yeah, I've, that's what I. Why I feel like it's almost like some of the stories or the stories that are told to to the the storytellers here. Um are oftentimes admissions of I know I shouldn't feel this but I do yes and it's almost like inner testimony uh and yeah. it, it's I it I, I think it works well no it is not sad. thank you
2: not I think sad. I got that a lot from sec well, I think they call them second generation survivors you know the kids as survivors who would tell me and I had friends I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood so I had friends who were sons and daughters of survivors, and and they would tell me, I know I shouldn't talk like this, or I know I shouldn't say this, but I wish my dad would tell me what happened to him in the camp, you know, or I know I shouldn't say this, but I wish I could just forget the Holocaust and just get on with my life.
1: I know. Well, it's, it's a very normal human response. Absolutely. The problem is, it's a paradox there, of course, is that if if we forget something like the Holocaust, it happens again. It happens again. I mean, you know, you it's like if you can't forget something that is such a huge injustice tra- tragedy. So it's sort of it, that's what's so difficult. Um, yeah. So yeah, I love. I, I I think that there is a real balance here of that. Now, you mentioned the incandescent threads and and how Benny conceives of them. Um, so here, I'm wondering, how do you think about them in yourself? I mean, not just the way Benny describes them, but are they literal to you? Or are they metaphorical? Do you do you believe in incandescent threads?
2: For me, they're both metaphorical and realistic. And I'll give you an example. Okay, when I was 12 years old, I read for the first time, the diary of Anne Frank. And like many people it had a huge effect on me. And as a 12 year old, I wished I could have saved her, you know, and uh but none of us could of course and we had neighbors across the street the goldbergs who were hungarian jews who had survived the camps we all knew that because they had the tattoos on their arms and i i got the courage from somewhere to run across the street to to mr goldberg when he was washing his car one day and it was kind of a silly question but i'm 12 years old i said did you know anne frank were you in camp with her and He showed me this smile that I give to Benny, which really isn't a smile. It's meant to cover up what can't be said. And he said, you know, I can't talk about that now. I just want to wash my car. It's a beautiful day. And only 50 years later did I start writing a novel that has that smile in it. And so for me, there's a thread stretching from Mr. Goldberg, my old neighborhood on Long Island, Roslyn Heights. All the way to the incandescent threads, this book, and all the way to you, Martha, because here we are discussing it. So there is, it's realistic for me, these events that happened in our past, we can't predict exactly how or when, but they are going to tie us, in my case, to readers, to to interviewers, you know, Mm -hmm. people I'll never meet. And to me, so it's both metaphorical and to, for me, it's completely truthful.
1: I like that because um, I do think that there is a way, uh, it, especially if you think of um, really the the writers that who have amazed us or like that story, Anne Frank's story, you know, all these things that really, really stick with us, they do inform our lives. And, and they do put all these threads out that connect up in ways we can't predict. At the time, anyone,
2: anyone who loves reading literature knows that because, you know, I feel so connected, for instance, to Willa Cather. Willa Cather, I read uh, My Antonia for me is, you know, a masterpiece. I feel so connected to Nebraska and that family and, you know, all our favorite authors have given us these worlds in which we've been able to explore and move around. And we'll never forget they're part of our lives.
1: One thing I thought about uh, the incandescent threads is that there's a real generosity to your characters i uh, it's almost like a lived in feeling with a need for kindness and forgiveness there are a couple of characters who are not nice but really <laughs> <laughs> but really there's that everybody trying to do good to be kind um yes. and this leads me to think that you must have had to come to terms with with some things in your life, in your own life that, and I'm wondering if you could say a bit about how your own experience has influenced the way your characters come to grip with trauma.
2: Well, you know, yes, we talked about trauma and the Holocaust is just one example. I mean, you know, there are abused kids and abused people all over the world and people who've suffered great health difficulties in my own life. Um, You know, I had a dysfunctional Jewish family. You know, my parents didn't get along. They were often arguing. They often seemed to base their relationship on cruelty and on doing their best to undermine each other. My mother ended up clinically depressed, didn't go out of the house for years at a time, you know, uh, with agoraphobia. My dad was emotionally violent and sometimes physically violent. And so my way of dealing with that as a kid was to escape the house. You know, I I was out of the house all day long, playing sports, basketball, baseball, soccer. And later, uh, when I fell in love with my husband, Alex, um, you know, I started to heal myself in a way. I started to realize that my life could be based on a different could go down a different route, that my life could be about kindness and generosity, and helping someone, my husband in this case, realize his potential. You know, there's a wonderful poem by Pablo Neruda that I'll paraphrase, in which he says something like, I want to do to you what springtime does to cherry blossoms.
1: Mm, yeah, I know that poem.
2: And I'm, I mean, to me, that's thats love. That's thats yeah. the love I feel for Alex, my husband, and and that's the love that Benny feels for Teresa and Teresa feels for Benny and what Benny feels for Shelly. And, you know, we can all forget that at times, you know, there are all times when we're bitter and we're mean and we're grumpy, but the basis has to be turning our loved ones into cherry blossoms.
1: That's so beautiful, Richard. I think I'm going to steal that.
2: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Go right ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Since it was probably Maruta anyway. (laughs)
1: Um. So, I, it's hard to segue from that, but I'm going to. Okay. Gonna try. Um. We talked a bit about um uh, how you come up with the voices for the characters yes. in this novel. Um, I would say that in many of your books, you have first-person narrators. You oftentimes have first-person narrators, which is a yeah. choice you make as a novelist or a writer in general. I mean, if you're writing, you know, personal nonfiction, you make some choices about how to be a first-person narrator too, right? So when you think about characters and voice. Why do you like to use the first-person voice? Um,
2: I think I'm a bit limited as a writer, and I recognized my limitation early on, thank goodness, that I'm only able to create something that truly means something to me and that seems realistic and beautiful and poetic when I write in the first person. When I write in the third person, I tend to be thinking too much about technique. You know, am I communicating? Is the technique right? for the character, uh, what word choices do I need to make? How do I shift from, you know, like this omnipresent third person to a very personal version? And it doesn't work for me because I'm thinking too much about the process of writing. And so the first person allows me to disappear. It allows me to vanish into the characters and the story. Now, there are other writers who are wonderful when they write in the third person, but I can't do it. I just can't.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, but one thing I think is interesting, though, I mean, if you're just looking at the incandescent threads, is that you still have to make choices about how you tell the stories about different characters. And so you don't have Benny or Shelley telling their own story here. You have their story told through all the other characters, particularly their wives, but also on um, the other characters too, George and yeah. Ethan and, and so on. So that's another choice. So why did you decide not to not to have them speak their own, voice their own story?
2: I just thought it would be more intriguing for me as a writer and for the reader as well to learn who Benny and Shelley are from the perspective of the people who love them most and whom they love the most. I thought that would give an original and distinct perspective to this book and very different from the one that Benny and Shelley might tell themselves. They might try to, you know, Shelley might get into the act of trying to defend his libidinous, you know, cheating on Julie. And I wanted to avoid that. I wanted Julie to express her hurt and her difficulties with dealing with a husband who can't remain faithful to him and how she finally has to read him the riot act and say it's me or it's all these other people you have to decide and that's a great moment for her empowering moment for her and it's a moment where shelley has to decide what he's going to do and happily he makes the right decision in my opinion and so i just felt felt it would make the book more powerful and more original
1: Well, and I also think for those particular characters, I mean, this is my take as a reader on this, is that you're absolutely right that they both were struggling so much to come to terms with um, uh, what happened in their escape from the Holocaust and how they remade themselves. They essentially remade themselves at least once, maybe more than once, right? To me, it doesn't seem so much an optimistic view as a view that people can survive. They actually can't not yes. just scratch along, but they can they can survive. Um, they can find love.
2: Uh, yeah, they, I think you hit the key when you said they remake their lives. They yeah. know they can't go back in the past and uh, give a different ending to what happened to their parents and their brothers and sisters. They can't. Uh, but what they can do and they come to realize is that they can change the present and future. They can work very hard to make their relationships with their wives and husbands and kids into what they really want them to be, based again on love and generosity and truth.
1: Obviously, your novels speak to Jewish audiences, but I think they also speak to non-Jewish audiences. Are there particular themes or historical corrections that you want non-Jewish readers to take away? Because you actually are oftentimes kind of bringing in forgotten pieces of history.
2: Right. That's an amazing question and one I've never thought about, except here in Portugal, strangely enough, because I live in a country where... Were, they were neutral, supposedly, in World War II, although we could discuss that for a long time um, because they were a fascist dictatorship at the time. Um, but here, the Holocaust, the details aren't very well known. Just in the last 10 or 15 years, the details about the camps and the ghettos have started to be talk, talked about in schools. And so when I... Go to a school or go to a library or bookshop, and I talk about this novel or one of my other novels, like the Warsaw Anagrams that discusses World War II. I'm often faced with, I hate to put it this way, but a complete blank. And so, what is it that I want people to take away? And part of what I tend to say is it's really important to understand the dimension of this crime against humanity that 6 million Jews were murdered, 500,000. Roma, gypsies, and many others. Um, Very important. But that doesn't create an emotional reaction in people. Just hearing the term six million, you know, people don't break down, they don't react in shock. Um, If you want to try to understand what happened to people like Anne Frank and Primo Levy, you have to read the witnesses' accounts and you have to read their memoirs. And hopefully you have to read really, really, really good historical novels, because then you as a reader can form a close identification with the narrator and the narrators of the book. And suddenly you're drawn into this horrific experience and you feel the claustrophobia of Anne Frank, who can't leave her hidden hiding place. You feel the absolute horrific absurdity of camp life that Primo Levi writes about and then i think you'll never really be there but you can begin to understand why people like Benny and Shelly in my book were so traumatized and had to make this huge huge effort to remake their lives
1: well i think that's the you know the uh, the the great strength of witnessing, whether it's very, very powerful kind of personal testimony or you know, Anne Frank's diary, right? you know, that kind of thing, or or actual really powerful novels yeah. which bring you in and um, you know, they they create empathy, you know, they bring you into somebody else's perspective.
2: Yeah, I've even heard from readers who've told me, you know, wow, Richard, I was never all that interested in reading about the camps or the ghettos or what happened to the Jews. And then I picked up the Warsaw anagrams or I picked up the incandescent threads. Mm-hmm. And suddenly I realized how silly and stupid I was that I needed to know this. I needed to know the depths of human cruelty. You know, that's something another thing that occurs to me and why I continue to write about this topic is that I think as human beings, we need to know how beautiful people can be, you know, how wonderful Michelangelo was and Beethoven, you know, we need to know the greatest people, but we also need to know how horrific things are because both of those sides make us what we are, make us human beings. And to neglect one side of that is to neglect part of human history and the human experience.
1: Well, yes, it's the angels and demons of our natures, right? Yes, I mean, I found this quote from you um, uh, from last year in the Portuguese Jewish News, which I thought is, uh, I think, quite on point here, and it is. Um, And this is you speaking over the past 25 years. I've discovered that writing from the perspective of people who have been persecuted, brutalized, and forgotten, gives me the energy, the slow burn of anger that I need to keep me going over the two to three years. It takes me to write a novel. It also makes me feel as if I'm fighting on the right side of history, which seems the best possible place to be. And so I,
2: I, that's absolutely true for me. And I, I tell I t- at schools, I tend to tell kids the right side of history is always the side that has a memory. The history in which we forget what seems inconvenient is, is, is not the right. That's the wrong side of history. And I think if we keep that in mind, we will be better for it and we will make better decisions about our present and future. You know, I- I'm 67 now, Martha. and uh, you know, I'm not, I don't consider myself very old, but I realized that my time on earth may be coming to an end in a decade Mm -hmm. or two. And I asked myself at some point, what do I want to leave behind? What's my contribution to make this world a more poetic, wonderful, beautiful, compassionate, kind place? And I realized it was, my Sephardic cycle, these novels about the Zarcos that are independent books. You know, you don't have to read one to like the others or Mm -hmm. anything like that. But I realized this is my contribution to Portugal, to America, and to the rest of the world. It may only be a small contribution, but that's what I'm going to leave behind.
1: Well, that kind of leads to my last question, which is, what do you love most about being a writer?
2: I love the process, you know, I love writing a paragraph that astonishes me, that I discover something about a character like Eva, the piano teacher. She Mm -hmm. says at one point in this novel that although she hid Benny and saved his life when he was only 11 years old, she realizes that he saved her life as well. That, 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 you know, remarkable insight came to me out of nowhere because she realizes that if she hadn't worked actively to save this beautiful young man, worked actively against the Nazis, she couldn't have looked at herself in the mirror. She couldn't have continued to play Mozart and Mendelssohn. She couldn't have continued to give music lessons to little kids. And so in a sense, Benny saved her life too. And it was when I wrote that paragraph, you know, I got like kind of chills because It was a surprise. And so that's what I love most about writing is is surprising and astonishing myself with these insights that the characters have.
1: Well, it's it's like the incandescent threads that we all have between whatever is in us and everything that has formed us, right? And this is actually a really, really good place for us to have you read because you're going to read a passage from um, Ava's section, one of the reasons why her section is so moving is that she sp- starts out with such a sense that her life has been a failure and small, yes. and that she never really got to go and do what she wanted to do. Yeah, her sense of smallness of and, and then and then how it opens up when this one small uh, boy arrives. Well, he's not that small. He's he's thirteen. <laughs>
2: think, <right>? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's. he's- by saving him, she realizes that whatever else happened in her life, it was worthwhile being alive. She did one wonderful thing, and maybe, maybe that's enough.
1: Why don't we have you finish up by reading that passage?
2: Yeah. Okay. This is a section where um, a Nazi official comes to visit Eva in her farmhouse. And um, he turns out to be a musician and um, loves seeing her beautiful piano there. So he says... The Nazi sat at the piano again and played a few bars of the first of Felix Mendelssohn's Songs Without Words with great sensitivity. I was certain that he chose that piece because Mendelssohn's family had been Jewish. Perhaps he meant to tell me that he knew I was lying. Very likely, he thought he was being clever. When Brandt was alone, he turned to me and said with cold and formal ease, I could have you hanged, Miss Armbruster. You do know that, don't you? I cleared my throat and took a deep breath. I felt strangely powerful, probably because I knew that nothing he could do could ever compel me to betray Benny. What I know is that you Germans control our country, I told him. Yes, we do. And hanging is a quick death. He stood up and his eyes were now remorseless and cold. Enemies of the German Reich, enemies who hide Jews, ought to be made to suffer for longer, don't you think? At that moment, I was certain that all the beautiful music that he'd learned had taught him nothing about what was important in life, and that seemed a great failing. You play very well, but if Mr. Mendelssohn were here, he'd find you a great disappointment, I said. If Mr. Mendelssohn were here, I'd have him executed along with you, he shot back and made to leave. At my front door, he turned to me with an icy glare and said, your piano needs tuning but it's the best I can find in this wretched backwater, so I'll send a truck for it tomorrow. Shortly after his departure, I fetched my ax and I knew what I had to do for Mendelssohn and Rossini and all the others. But my Broadwood seemed like a closest friend I'd ever had and I couldn't do it. Instead, I used a knife to engrave my name under the lid, thinking that I would claim it back if I lived to see Poland free of Grant and his friends. Late that afternoon, I walked out my front door and never looked back. I brought only a little food and some keepsakes from my mother with me. I felt astonishingly light, freed from a destiny I'd never really wanted in the first place, the destiny of leading a small, isolated and docile life. I realized that I was no longer afraid of what the Nazis might do to me. I wanted only to be with Benny for as long as I remained alive.
1: Thank you, Richard. Thank you. It was wonderful, wonderful talking with you
2: today. I think this was the best interview I've ever done. And I thank you very much. Seriously, <laughs> we touched on so many moving topics and important topics. And, um, and I'm very grateful.
0: <gasps> thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Writing Podcast. We're an independent literary site and nonprofit organization based in the Boston area, but with contributors from around the world. Since our founding in 2010, we've relied on donations to keep publishing and podcasting. To donate to TW, you can use the Donate button on the RSS.com page of this podcast or visit TalkingWriting.com donate. And of course, feel free to drop us a line at editor at TalkingWriting.com.